This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Have you always been keen to donate blood, but you can't because you love tattoos too much? A quarter of us have got tats, but that means there's been a big wait if you want to give blood until today. The rules have changed, but there are still heaps of people who cannot donate blood right now. Why not? We're going to find out later what the rule changes are. The campaign to open up donation to other members of society, we'll be hearing about that. Also coming up, there's a record-breaking heatwave in the oceans around the world. You might be a bit surprised, though, by what could be contributing to that. First, though. Hack. Exactly where this goes, we don't know. But what we do know is that we've seen real cracks emerge, a direct challenge to Putin's authority. On Triple Jack. Yeah, did you see what was happening in Russia over the weekend? There were aircraft being shot out of the sky, an explosion at an oil depot. The main highway to Moscow was filled with tanks. It wasn't Ukrainians attacking Russian forces, though. It was Russian troops and fighters themselves from the Wagner Group. Now, we're going to explain them in a bit, who they are, what they do. The really weird thing, though, was a little over a day after all this chaos broke out for Vladimir Putin, it was all over. Some deal had been done. What deal? What the hell happened? And what does it mean long term? for Russia and for the war in Ukraine. In a minute, we're going to get some analysis, but first, here's Shalila Madora to bring you up to speed. Okay, there's no way of telling this story without first explaining who the Wagner Group is. It's a group of mercenaries, soldiers who fight for whoever pays them, basically. The Wagner Group is huge. It's suspected they have around 50,000 members, and 80% of those are thought to be convicts who've come out of prison in Russia. It's run by this guy, Evgeny Prigozhin, an ex-con businessman who's labelled Putin's chef because he used to do catering for the Kremlin. The Wagner Group has been key in helping Russia in the war in Ukraine. Russia's Wagner mercenary group claims to have finally captured the built-up areas of the city. It comes after eight months of bloody fighting that claimed tens of thousands of lives. A few days ago, Prigozhin accused Russia's defence minister of deliberately killing Wagner members fighting in Ukraine and threatened to march on Moscow in retaliation. The evil of the military leadership must be stopped. They neglected the lives of soldiers, they forgot the word justice, and we will bring it back. And that's when shit got real. The Wagner Group captured a port city crucial to moving supplies to troops fighting in Ukraine. The head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, says his troops took over the city of Rostov-on-Don without firing a shot. From there, Wagner tanks started on the main highway to Moscow, reportedly shooting down Russian planes and helicopters and forcing Russian troops to dig anti-tank trenches along the highway. Russian President Vladimir Putin was pissed. He called Prigozhin a traitor. Any internal mutiny is a serious threat to our state. It is a blow to Russia. Our actions to defend the state against this threat will be harsh. And then within 36 hours of the whole thing kicking off, a retreat. Prigozhin and Putin had reportedly cut a deal. According to the deal, all criminal charges against Mr. Prigozhin will be dropped and he will move to Belarus. As for the Wagner fighters who took part in this uh, mutiny, they will not be charged. They won't face any criminal charges because of their frontline service. Residents of Rostov cheered and waved at Wagner tanks as they left the city. 
a sign that maybe Vladimir Putin doesn't have the same grip on power that he once did. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. We've got some other news that was out today. There's heaps happening in this space with Ukraine. We had the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, announcing another military support package for Ukraine worth $110 million. He says Australia's going to send dozens more military vehicles to Ukraine, armoured vehicles. Some questions as well. Chris in a Wabakal country says, is the unrest because Russia wants to leave Ukraine because the Ukraine invasion isn't working? Let's find out. Let's unpack this a whole lot more. We've got our favourite expert with us, Dr Matthew Sussex from ANU's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. He knows all about this stuff. G'day, Matt. Welcome back to Hack. Thanks for having me. What do you think? Is this the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin? Look, I I honestly think it is. Putin has, uh, I I think, a number of real challenges he needs to overcome. Uh, Number one, he needs to be able to explain why he goes on national TV and says there's civil war coming and uh, his his former confidant needs to be arrested and and liquidated uh, and then in a few hours comes back and says, no, actually everything's fine. He also needs to be able to explain why this former friend of his uh, is allowed to escape with his skin um, after saying Russia needs a new president uh, and the war in uh, Ukraine is based on a lie. So there are, I think, some some cracks opening up in his facade, uh, especially when he had to use the leader of a foreign country, uh, of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, to solve his problems for him. Yeah, there's so many questions here that it's it's baffling, right? We had this guy who, as you mentioned, Putin was good mates with, declaring that he was ready to go all the way in his mutiny against the Russian military, and then he just dropped it. What do you think has happened there? Like, is there some kind of deal? What do you think the deal is? Well, I mean, there's probably much more happening behind the scenes than, uh, than we'll ever know. Um, there are some whispers that um, the Russian security services were uh, starting to make threats against not Prigozhin's family, but his, uh, uh, some of his key lieutenants. There are also suggestions that uh, Prigozhin figured that his convoy wouldn't be able to fight its way into Moscow, um, that, that it would be obliterated and, and he'd better negotiate. All that might be true, but the fact is that his convoy managed to get less than two hours from the Russian capital, shot down a number of helicopters, but really was pretty much unmolested the whole way. And if you're Putin, then you've got to be worrying, well, who is it within the armed forces, within my own personal national guard, and within the intelligence agency, either can't act uh, against what amounts to a mutiny, or is, is just apathetic to it. And do you think this opens the doors to other revolts, that it's going to make it easier uh, for other people to stand up against Vladimir Putin, what's happening in Russia? Well, look, for a long time, Putin has ruled with a mixture of fear and reward. And he set the different clans uh, around him, the power clans, against one another, fighting each one, each, each other to deflect blame. Um, we've seen that with Wagner and the armed forces. Uh, over failure to to capture uh, the town of Bakhmut. And I think what this does now is it it says to, you know, people in the military, says to people in the intelligence agencies, well, hang on, people can get away with criticising the president and and get away virtually scot-free. 
But more than that, it kind of gives them an incentive to band together now rather than be driven apart. And that's for the simple reason that in the aftermath of putting down a mutiny, there's generally a purge. And there are plenty of people in the armed forces and the security agencies who, who supported Prigozhin. And, uh, you know, if, if you're in the, that position, then you might think, well, hang on, why do I have to submit to this? You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Matthew Sussex from ANU about this massive revolt that we saw in Russia over the weekend and everything that's happened since. There's so much news. Matt, can you explain what this Wagner group is? Shalila kind of gave a bit of a rundown before, explained it as a, a private army, basically. But where do they come from? Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of private army. Um, it um, was formed by uh, Putin's former chef, uh, the head of the very infamous internet research agency, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Um, and it's mainly been active in Africa, where they've been training armies, providing security, and making enormous out of, amounts of money out of the resource sector, uh, and, uh, and also importing weapons there. Now, uh, Wagner has been used now by Putin in the war in Ukraine, um, and uh, its, its leader has had to go uh, to increase numbers, not to the Russian military, but to Russia's jails to report to uh, enlist large numbers of cannon fodder, basically saying to prisoners, well, you know, we will commute your sentences if you come and fight for us. So Wagner is, is now a mix of very well-trained uh, operators, but also uh, some of the, the most desperate uh, of Russia's, I guess, Russian society. Are there a lot of mercenary groups like this around the world? Yeah, look, uh, private military companies are, are increasing um, in number. They're all kind of kicked off, I suppose. You could say with the United States' use of Blackwater in Iraq, which has you know, subsequently changed names a number of times. But it goes all the way back to, to sort of mercenary groups and, and even foreign legions. Wagner is, is less of a private military corporation um, and more of a, a sort of de facto arm of the Russian state. They train at Russian military bases. They have a code of honour that says that they should advance Russian interests everywhere. And so they're very centrally tied to the regime in the way that uh, a classic private military company really isn't. Matt, what implications are there for the war in Ukraine? Because I imagine Ukrainians are going to be pretty happy watching all of this unfold over the weekend. Um, absolutely. And the way the memes were circulating uh, the <laughs> other day, it was just, just lots and lots of popcorn. I think that realistically, uh, it doesn't have a huge impact immediately. Uh, and that's because the Wagner forces had withdrawn away from the front lines anyway. And so the people that the Ukrainians were facing were regular Russian army um, and, and mobilised Russians. So that's not going to change hugely. What will change, though, is um, morale, I think, in the Russian armed forces, particularly if they become the target of, of purges looking for pro-Wagner factions. Um, and, and that's going to hurt morale really, really badly. And the Ukrainians, I think, would be very, very pleased with that development, particularly not just the instability in Russia itself, but the instability that will be caused to, to the Russian military on the front. What do you think is going to happen to this Yevgeny Prigozhin? Uh, it's a $10 million question. Um, I think he's probably wondering exactly the same thing. Yeah, who knows? We haven't really heard from him. He said he was going to go into exile. You know, he could have a, a convenient heart attack on the way. He could, you know, go to a building that has more than one story and have an accident. 
uh, or he would just fade off into insignificance, or uh, he could take over, you know, the international operations of Wagner like he did before uh, with their, their wealthy business in Africa. Um, all those things are on the table, but it's certainly going to be pretty hard for him to have the same kind of impact, I think, from Minsk as it did from from the front line and the the Russian border with Ukraine. You did say earlier that you thought this showed a real weakening of the grip on power that Vladimir Putin has in Russia. His current presidential term runs out next year. How worried do you think he'd be? Uh, I think he'd be quite surprised um, at, you know, how badly this went so quickly. And what was instructive was that he really did seem to go into the shadows. Uh, it wasn't for many, many hours before he he actually fronted the the TV cameras to say that this is this is a civil war coming, and then of course walked that back really, really quickly once he struck a deal with Prigozhin. So uh, I think this will will show him effectively that he has created a system where nobody trusts one another, and where in particular Putin can trust no one, um, and that means really he can't leave office. He's going to have to try and uh, remain president and uh, otherwise, you know, something nasty might befall him as well. And that's a kind of grim thing, I think, for a leader to to look forward to. It's so interesting. There's so much more that we could dive into. We're out of time, unfortunately. Dr Matthew Sussex from ANU's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Always a pleasure, Dave. And we've got messages coming through. Someone says, is this other Russian bloke worse than Putin? Well, yeah, if you want to know more about Yevgeny Prigozhin, the ABC's done a big write-up on it. You can find it on the ABC website. They go into his history, who he is, what he does. Another person says, there must be more to this. Wagner Group chief is not stupid and knows those who oppose Putin have a history of dying in terrible ways. It's such an interesting story. There's so much that we don't know is the issue here, but we will stay across it. Pack. The oceans are heating up fast. On Triple J. When we talk about climate change, so much of the focus is usually on what's happening on the land, whether it's droughts or heat waves or floods and storms. But at the moment, there's a marine heat wave happening that has a lot of scientists really worried. Global ocean temperatures are at record highs. And as well as climate change, some scientists are also discussing what other factors might be adding to it as well. Joe Lauder explains. I spend a lot of time on Twitter and I follow a lot of climate scientists. And for the past couple of months, there's been these graphs that are right there every time I open it up. They show average global ocean surface temperatures. And at the moment, they're literally off the chart of the graphs. Professor Matthew England is from the UNSW Climate Change Research Centre and he studies oceans and how oceans absorb heat. The oceans right now or this year are the warmest ever measured. So the warmest ever on record. Yeah, that's correct. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the US, or NOAA, says that about 40% of the global ocean is currently experiencing a marine heat wave. Professor England says the oceans have been doing the bulk of heavy lifting with climate change. The oceans are highly absorbent of heat and carbon from the atmosphere. So as we warm the planet with increased greenhouse gases, what we're doing is trapping extra energy in the system. And as you trap that energy, it it creates warmth and the oceans are very good at absorbing that heat. They take up actually over 90% of global warming to date has been absorbed by the oceans. It's wrong to kind of think, oh, that's great. The oceans have absorbed 93% of the heat. We can sort of 
put that out of mind because um, there's tremendous payback to that heat uptake. Yeah, warming oceans aren't a good thing. They affect marine life, they can cause coral bleaching, melting ice caps, and warmer oceans also drive more intense storms. There's been a lot of discussion from scientists online about what's behind this rise in ocean temperatures at the moment and what might be making it worse. To be clear, this isn't to say that it's not caused by climate change, but what else might be feeding into the climate system to add to that? Because it's this huge and insanely complicated system. For starters, we're coming into an El Nino that's characterised by warmer oceans in the Pacific. And that El Nino-La Nina cycle's been around since forever. It's a natural part of the climate system. However, we do know that as we warm the planet, we intensify that cycle. So we expect to see more regular intense El Nino events, more regular intense La Nina events. Another discussion has been around the aerosol effect. Professor Duncan Watson-Paris is a scientist at the Scripps Institute for Oceanography. These are tiny particles um, that can come from natural sources uh, or from man-made sources. So natural examples of aerosol are things like sea salt and dust. But in burning fossil fuels, we emit lots of kind of man-made aerosols. So these are, you can imagine the soot particles that come out of dirty trains or trucks. When we have more aerosol particles in the atmosphere, they reflect back more sunlight and that causes less warming. So weirdly, air pollution in the short term can have a cooling effect. Those aerosol only last in the atmosphere for a few days or weeks, whereas the greenhouse gas, particularly CO2, stays there effectively indefinitely. And so as we transition to a greener economy and, and cleaner fuels and energy sources, that cooling, that masking of the warming by the aerosols will go away um, and we'll, we'll kind of unmask extra warming. So basically, the more air pollution there is, the more it masks the problem in the short term. But air pollution is still really bad and we need to cut it. And there are a couple of reasons why some scientists are talking about the aerosol effect at the moment in relation to hotter oceans. One is that lighter winds across the Atlantic Ocean have caused less dust from Saharan Africa to blow over the ocean. And another is to do with shipping fuel. In 2020, new regulations came in to massively cut the amount of sulphur pollution coming from shipping fuel. It means that there's less pollution around ports and over oceans that have a lot of shipping. Professor Duncan says while this would have some impact, he doesn't believe it's causing what we're seeing at the moment. I am hesitant to believe some of the narrative that this is this is caused by um, the change in shipping regulations. You know, regardless of whether that particular event is is due to this change or not, we we do expect um, that as we clean up these aerosol, we will unmask this warming, and it is something that that I'm concerned about, and that we should motivate us to reduce um, burning fossil fuels uh, as quickly as possible. Can't use it as a way just to keep a can further down the road. Professor Matthew England from the Uni of New South Wales says at the end of the day, we know what needs to happen. I'm really concerned and that's why as a scientist, um, you know, we do the research and try to find out how and why things are happening. But um, when, when we see changes in the climate system that are alarming, that are concerning, that are happening faster than predicted, uh, we need to get out there and talk about it. We need to make sure that policymakers, governments around the world here in Australia know that we have a problem with fossil fuel emissions, know that we've got to stop burning coal, burning gas. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder with that story. So interesting. All of the research that's going on in that area. We're going to stay across that 
as well. Now, though, we're going to move on to blood donations. Hack. People who've had uh, tattoos clearly aren't nervous of needles. They're the perfect blood donors. On Triple Jack. How often do you donate blood? If you're into body art, getting a lot of tattoos, maybe not as often as you like. And that's because there've been some restrictions in place. But from today, it's all changing. And this rule change could see thousands more people allowed to donate, which is great news, right? Have you always wanted to donate blood, but haven't been allowed to because you get tattoos regularly? Is it going to impact you? If if you're in this category, I want to hear from you. You can message in 0439 757 There's a campaign for this to go a lot further. We'll find out a bit more about that in a bit. But first, here's April McLennan with the update. I've probably got about, I'm going to say 20. They're all random, just dumb fun things. Kelsey Mortimer is telling me about all the different tattoos she's gotten over the years. Something that's been a bit tricky to navigate while she's been donating blood. In Australia, people who've got fresh ink previously had to wait four months to donate blood because there were concerns that if an unclean tattoo needle had been used, they could have contracted a bloodborne virus like hepatitis or HIV. It's always kind of been a bit of an issue in that I haven't been able to donate whole blood due to having to wait the four months from appointment time. So probably for at least a year or so now, because I've been getting tattoos every couple of months, I've only been able to donate plasma. From today, a rule change by Australian Red Cross Lifeblood means those with a new tattoo will be able to roll up their sleeves and give blood after just one week. That's because Lifeblood did a study that found there was no increased risk to the blood supply from people who got tattoos in licensed Australian tattoo parlours or cosmetic clinics. But if your mate's given you a backyard tat or you got it in an unlicensed premise or overseas, you're still going to have to wait four months to donate. Before the rule changed, like, how did it make you feel that like you weren't able to donate whole blood as regularly as you wanted because you love getting tattoos? was maybe a little bit frustrating but I guess maybe having a background in health I understood it so I just understood that this was probably the best practice to be done. Because so many people have tattoos these days there's been an ongoing push to relax the strict rules around blood donations. Back in 2020 the rules were changed so that people who'd recently got a tattoo could donate plasma straight away and because of today's changes Lifeblood reckon they'll get an extra 10,000 blood donations every year. People with tattoos are going to be great candidates to do that because you're not going to be afraid of needles and you can handle a tiny little bit of pain and to know that you're making such an impact um, on people who really really need it is really really cool. And while this is super great news for people with tats, there's calls for more changes to be made to allow even more people to donate. At the moment, bisexual men, gay men and trans women still can't give blood in Australia if they've had sex with men in the past three months due to concerns about HIV infections. The social stigma is really making a lasting impact. I think really it should change. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. Got people on the text line who, you know, want to donate blood, some who are now allowed, others who can't. Michael says, I can't donate because I'm gay and sexually active. A lot of people asking about why there are still restrictions in place stopping many gay, bisexual, trans donors. Australian Red Cross Lifeblood answered Hack's questions and they sent us a bit of an update and said, look, the change to tattoos is the culmination of a two-year research project. 
Changing rules to blood donation is complex. It takes time. A submission to remove rules around donating plasma has been approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, so they're just waiting on final approval from governments and others, and that'll mean that gay, bisexual men will be allowed to donate plasma, including people on PrEP, without any wait period at all. But for whole blood donations, it's a different story. We'll find out a bit more about that now. With us is Rodney Croom from the Let Us Give campaign. Hey, Rodney, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. There are obviously a lot of people out there who want to donate but can't at the moment. Lifeblood's saying the research to allow changes for gay, bisexual, trans people, uh, a lot of those people just isn't available at the moment. It takes time. How do you respond to that? Uh, My response is that the research is available. Um, A number of other countries like Australia have dropped their gay blood bans and instead adopted a system where all donors are assessed for their individual risk based on uh, an increasing amount of international research in this area. We're talking about the UK, Canada, the US, France, Germany, Greece, Israel. The list is long, gets longer and longer. And it's all because of um, quite a solid uh, amount of evidence from overseas showing that the, um, to use the statistical term, that the risk of allowing gay men to give blood is meaningless, it's so low, and that individual risk assessment is the way to go. So I'm not sure why the Red Cross needs to take two years here in Australia when the evidence is already there. So much evidence that those countries, which are just as cautious as Australia when it comes to the safety of the blood supply, have already moved on. If we do move to individual risk assessments, as other countries have done, so everyone has to go through the same vetting process, some experts are saying that a lot of gay and bisexual men will be unable to donate anyway because, you know, if they're on PrEP, which is tens of thousands of people, um, if they've got a new sexual partner, if they've got more than one partner, it's not going to make a huge difference. Um, and, they're, and they're challenging kind of the, the figures around how many additional people would be eligible to donate. And we might see a lot of heterosexual people ineligible under that system. Uh, what do you think of, of those claims? Well, if we look at the numbers of gay men who are already donating in the countries I've mentioned, which are quite similar to Australia, like Canada, the UK, um, then we see that there is a substantial increase in the amount of safe blood available. Um, yes, there will be some gay men and some straight people who can't donate because they fall foul of the individual risk assessment question, which in the UK and Canada is something to the effect of, have you had anal sex with a new or multiple partners in the last three months? If you have, then you can't give blood. But of course, a lot of gay men would uh, not fall foul of that new individual risk assessment criterion. Um, And like I said, in those other countries, the blood supply has increased substantially thanks to the fact that there are uh, a substantial number of gay men who could donate. If we, if we look at the percentage of gay men in Australia, let's say it's about four and a half, four, four and a half percent, um, about three and a half percent of those would donate blood if we look at the figures for heterosexuals that currently give. Um, and that would be 13 and a half thousand new donors, which would translate to over 54,000 donations, new donations a year. Um, these are people who would be eligible to donate under an individual risk assessment scheme. That is a very large amount of blood available to save the lives of Australians in need. Now, to your point about heterosexuals falling foul of that question about anal sex with new or multiple partners, um, 
the Red Cross in Canada, or the Canadian Blood Service, I should say, did a survey of all of its blood collection centres and it found that less than 1% of existing heterosexual donors would not be able to give blood under an individual risk assessment system. Um, that, that's a figure that would be more than made up for by the numbers of gay men who I've just mentioned would be able to give blood safely. So I really don't think that that's an issue. I think we would see an increase in the blood supply. Well, look, I mean, and the figures around the projections, uh, how many people would then be eligible or um, would be willing to donate blood, they vary. Of course, there's been um, different modelling into this. Some people say it wouldn't be as high as 54,000. Others say it would. People are also asking on the text line what PrEP is. Uh, and, you know, it's basically a medicine taken by a person who wants um, uh, to lower their chance of HIV infection. Uh, a lot of gay, bisexual people uh, take this medication, trans is as well. Um, look, it's it's definitely a huge topic, one I'm sure we'll be speaking with you a lot more about. Rodney Croom from the Let Us Give campaign, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, gay and bisexual men are far more likely to be on top of their HIV and STI risk than the general population. We take medications like PrEP that protect us. Uh, it drives me so mad when I hear some of the arguments against this. Another person says, I've never been able to give blood because I get tattooed regularly but have also had an autoimmune disease. Another person says, uh, I lost my mum as a result of a blood-borne disease from a blood transfusion. I think there needs to be strong screening processes. And somebody else says, I'm a transfusion scientist in a hospital. All I want to say is if you can donate, do. Last week in Victoria, there were only 38 O-neg red cells at Lifeblood for a whole day for all of Victoria. Crazy. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.